Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. And today, before we start out, I just want to remind you that there is this website called wealthformula.com, which you are going to want to check out if you want to get involved with this community at a higher level. And uh, that's where you can get a number of resources. It's not available on the podcast itself. And also, it's where you can sign up for various lists to get more involved in our community. One of those is the Accredited Investor Club, which is the place to be if you're interested in potentially not just listening and being a podcast groupie, so to speak, and actually put your money to work for you. Get that lazy money off the sideline. If you're an accredited investor, go to wealthformula.com and sign up for our accredited investor club. Now, let's talk about today's show. Okay, this show is interesting because I've kind of alluded to this in the past uh, in my analysis of, of what's going on in the economies. You know, for the last 15 years, it's really been a game of chicken between the Federal Reserve fiscal policy and even in financial markets, right? So Federal Reserve and fiscal policy on one side, financial markets on the other side, including real estate, equity markets, et cetera. And they're all driving, you know, like there's these old, these old movies, right? Where in the 1950s and you get these kids in these cars and they start driving toward each other as fast as they can. And then uh, the game of chicken is lost by whoever suddenly turns away quickly uh, to avoid collision and certain death. Now, similarly, the financial markets and the Federal Reserve have been trying to figure out who would chicken out first, right? So let me give you an example, right? I mean, it's a very recent, easy thing to look at. And I mean, despite COVID shutting down the entire country, the asset markets, well, after a quick, you know, huge drop, right? They go on within months to going sky high. Why? Because investors knew that the Fed would come in and rescue them uh, as they did. Rates dropped to zero. There's quantitative easing. Bond markets were controlled uh, for that reason. Interest rates um, and, and a ton of money into the uh, hands of institutional investors banks, et cetera. That's what happens, right? And we saw that pattern happen before too. We saw it in 2008. And so 
it has created a little bit of a paradigm uh, where, like, you know, we learn from what's happening. Like, like uh, you know, if you, you Pavlovian dogs, you know, smelling, uh, smelling whatever thing they do and all of a sudden they get hungry. I mean, it's the same kind of thing, right? Like it's uh, you, you learn from your experience. And when you learn that you can make big bets and then if you lose, then the, then you're going to get bailed out. I mean, it's like going to the, if you were at the casino, I mean, wouldn't you keep playing if the house guaranteed you wouldn't lose money at the end of the the night, right? I mean, you're, you're down to 6,000, 8,000, whatever, but don't worry. Don't worry. We're okay. We're not going to let you get out of here you know, without at least making your money back. And that's the way investors came to see the Fed for the last 15 years. And it's not just the Fed, but it's Fed and fiscal policy too. They see it as an insurance policy. Okay. And by the way, I say they, but I mean, you know, and, and when I'm talking about institutional investors, but we all massively benefited from that, especially if you were an investor club, you saw you know, these huge, like, I mean, we, we do value add, but we had a significant asset bubble uh, on top of that as well that we actually benefited from. So when we got this whole inflation thing on Main Street, right, because that's the recognized inflation, and that happened because of the massive amount of helicopter money injected from the Biden administration and also you know, the supply chains creating huge demand, labor markets became very competitive, driving wages up, et cetera, and all that too. But when all that happened, you know, of course, the Fed started raising rates again. And at first, the market shrugged it off because, well, they were playing chicken again, right? They kept, but um, then the Fed kept raising rates. And all of a sudden, it's not really quite as clear who's going to blink first, right? It's not the Fed that's going to definitely like go on the, you know, make that quick turn right before the collision. So now, uh, you know, there's a little bit of rockiness in 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 the markets. They're not not doing great. Uh, real estate has been tricky too, and that's because the Fed has been very clear about getting inflation under control. They know it has to be done, and that's finally getting through to some investors, or is it? Or is it? That's the question, right? Actually, we also uh, know that we can only raise rates so much, right? Before you get a serious problem in the global financial situation with sovereign debt and all that type of thing. And if, if we end up in a massive recession because of rate increases, well, many investors think you know, that may actually happen and that rates are going to go back down and they may or may not be right. But the moral of the story, the moral of the story is that there's now a well-established disconnect between the economy and financial markets. That's the new normal. And that is the question that Nomi Prinz, who I think is one of the smartest financial authors out there, has written about in her new book. So when we come back, Nomi Prinz and the Great Distortion. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com.
Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Nomi Prin. She's an economist, geopolitical financial expert, and investigative journalist. She is also a great financial author, um, and she has written multiple books, including All the President's Bankers, Collusion, How Central Bankers Rigged the World, and the most recent book, Permanent Distortion, How the Financial Markets Abandoned the Real Economy Forever. Thanks for joining the show, Nomi. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me on. It's um, very choppy times we're living in right now. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, let's just start off. I mean, you, your title, the title of your most recent book is very telling. I mean, it kind of tells a story right there, right? Permanent distortion, how the financial markets abandoned the real economy forever. So, you know, I think um, many people who are not economists like myself um, and who are just following what's going on, and it's really what's been going on since maybe 2008, uh, have have noticed this idea that hey the economy and recession doesn't mean you know it doesn't really reflect on markets i mean during covid everything was the businesses were were non-functional but the markets were still going up is that essentially kind of the when you talk about the permanent distortion of the economy is that what you're you're referring to yeah, that's that's it in a nutshell. Um, and and yes, that that title and the subtitle were very specifically um, chosen to not just say there is a distortion now, but that the distortion that that has developed since two thousand eight between the markets and the real economy has actually become permanent. It's it's like we're we're not going back. And, and and there's there's two ways that the market outperforms effectively does better than the real economy. One is when. Um, there is a crisis, whether it's a financial crisis or whether it's a COVID shutdowns, and there's all this money that is um, created at the hands of the central banks, um, the Fed and other central banks around the world that have the ability to effectively um, inject or you know, basically liquefy the markets with, with um, money that they create, and they buy back from the market's debt. So they basically inject money and, and extract debt, um, but it doesn't really help the real economy to do that. And so what happens is the markets inhale that injected money i'm probably mixing metaphors here but they, they inhale what comes at them and um as a result they, they they balloon in different ways the stock market the bond markets the real estate markets and so forth balloon in different ways when that heavy injection is coming in um when it goes out uh, there is some pain for, for the stock market, as we're seeing right now, and the bond markets and the real estate market a little bit, but it's nowhere near the pain that the real economy feels uh, for various reasons, from not having participated in the upside to all of the higher costs of everything from utility bills to food bills to medical bills. And so there's, there's always this distortion between where the money goes and what it helps versus the real economy and most people that live in the real economy that um, are impacted on the negative side, either way, if the markets are going up or if the markets are going down. What, what do you think was the, uh, you know, the precipitating 
factor in this, of course, as you mentioned, it was 2008 and, um, you know, the meltdown. Uh, what, what, at what point do you think this went from a short-term panacea to a permanent distortion? So that's a really good question because I, I written a book after the financial crisis, well, a couple, but, but the one that specifically looked at the central bank's kind of role in, um, in creating the first part of the distortion. My book, Collusion, was basically how a lot of central banks around the world in the wake of the financial crisis created all this money, it went into markets and so forth. And the real economy, GDP, for example, um, stayed effectively around zero give or take at most it was sort of two percent per year on but but for the most part it, it hovered between you know sort of minus and two percent so really the economy wasn't really going anywhere but the market was was going up quite a lot um, and so that was sort of when distortion was was accelerating but where it became permanent was when the economy was shut down effectively and what the federal reserve did and other central banks they didn't just inject some money they they, they doubled in a few months the amount of money that they had injected during all of the years that precipitated that from the financial crisis of 2008 through 2019. So it wasn't like they just added a little bit or they distorted markets a little bit more. They they, they, they doubled what they had done in, in all those those um, preceding years. And that's when I think it became permanent because two things happened. Then one is um, the financial system, the market system recognized that no matter what, there was a effectively an unlimited amount of money that could be created in an emergency. Now, what defines an emergency is always up for grabs. In that situation, it was, it was, it was COVID-related shutdowns. But whatever an emergency is, there's an ability um, to create vast sums of money to basically flood the markets with. And what we're seeing now is um, what happens when the the foot of the central banks is, is a bit taken off the gas pedal and they sort of start to raise rates to, to tighten in um, inflation and some of the things that they just did over the last two years in terms of creating money and creating all of this influx. Um, and also um, seeing the markets crater as a result because the markets want this cheap money. They got used to it. They got dependent on it. Um, in the book, I call it an addiction. Sure. And so what we're seeing now is what happens in withdrawal from um, an addiction, which is the markets are buckling, but more so the economy is stumbling and there's more uncertainty throughout. Um, and so all of that became permanent. Um, the upside and the downside to markets and to the economy in the wake of the COVID crisis. It strikes me that there part of this distortion um, has resulted in in sort of this uh, almost like a a game of uh, financial chicken between uh, the you know the the central banks and the large institutional investors right like how much can we do and how much can we get away with and then you'll bail us out and we know you're gonna bail us out because you've shown it over and over that yeah. that is a uh, how do you how do you escape that cycle? Because that to me seems like that's something uh, that is very firm now. I like I feel like investors, whether it's retail investors or institutional investors, nobody really believes that the Fed is just going to just let things correct themselves. Yeah, I I I think that's 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 true. No one does believe that because of because of the facts. Now, what's happening right now is that um, Fed Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell is 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 
echoing what happened in the 80s with, with, with when um, then Federal Reserve Chairman Paul Volcker was at the helm, where there was multiple years of inflation and there was multiple rate hikes over time. We had rates go up to 20% for a minute. Um, and he's basically saying, look, inflation is really high. I'm, gonna, I'm sort of going to peg for now. Um, what the Federal Reserve policy is on this really high inflation, and we're going to, you know, quote, do whatever it takes to get inflation down. Now, now the problem is, and, and why the markets don't believe that, besides the fact that they've shown that they can expand their book and reduce rates to zero when they feel like it, um, is that the inflation that, that Powell is talking about doesn't come from monetary policy inflation. If it did, they could have stopped it a long time ago. They've been inflating markets since 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, it, 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 it so happens it has come from a confluence of events. One is opening economies after they were shut down, which means reopening plants, which means reopening um, supply chains, reopening transportation change um, after they've been closed down. So the extra cost that that incurs um, when things have been shut down to restart them up. And then you couple that with the fact that we've got um, other problems going on in the world uh, on the food side. You know, we've got what we've got, we've got droughts, we've got um, problems with fertilizers on the energy side. We have natural gas price spikes we have geopolitical tension between Russia and Ukraine. We have an energy mess in Europe that's going to push more of the cost of, of, of energy prices upward. So all that's happening together. So what that what that looks like is higher inflation because, in fact, it is. Um, but it's not something that the Federal Reserve or any other central bank can do anything about. The Fed's not going to go and, like, help you with your electric bill. It's not going to create oil. It's not going to create food. Um, it's not going to create food or fertilizer. You know, it's not a farmer. It's not a miner. It's not, it's not a producer. So... So the problem that's happening right now is the markets are saying, wait, but wait a minute, you're talking about fighting inflation. Okay. But the inflation you're talking about fighting is not inflation you can beat. Mm -hmm. And so at some point, what you're doing is causing a choking off of, of financing capabilities to, to real people, to, to, you know, for, for sure. mortgages, for, for car loans, for, um, for tuition, for, for, for things that, that, that people kind of need and use in, in their regular lives outside of the markets. And so by raising rates, you, you are increasing those costs. And that can create a situation where people don't, you know, don't buy that next home or, um, or, or choked off on rent or don't get that next car. That's why we have such a, you know, extreme supply in the used cars um, side of the, of the equation. And, and, and that can hurt the economy on the real side, but it doesn't impact food prices or fuel prices. Um, and so all those reasons are why the markets are saying, look, at some point the Fed, and, and I agree with this, honestly, at some point, based on this reality and the fact that it will slow down the economy, um, because people can't both pay higher electricity bills and their rent, and things things will happen. Things will be shaken out as a result. It's painful out there. Um, that's going to create a scenario where the Fed's going to have to stop raising rates um, and stop letting assets float off of its book, which it's doing really slowly anyway. It just says it's doing it. It's not really doing it that much. Um, and either stop raising rates or go back to cutting rates. And so you're right. Long answer, but but it's important. I think there's so much going on here um, that there is a kind of game of chicken going on um, because at some point the Fed, in order to maintain price stability, will have to recognize that the real economy or GDP figures anyway are are, are very very slow and energy prices are very very high. And they're going to have to back off. And that's what the market's waiting for and betting on. And the market, what it's doing right now, especially institutional investors, um, is saying, all right, well, we'll ride this down for now. But at some point, there is going to be a swoosh up because at some point the Fed's going to um, first stop raising rates as much, then go to neutral, 
And then the third part of that pivot, go to cutting rates. Uh, one of the things that you'd mentioned, um, you know, you, you'd, you'd, you'd mentioned Paul Volcker uh, in the 1980s. One of the major differences, I guess, in the economy at that time was that that we didn't have quite the debt that we have in the system now, right. right? And so is that a, how much of a, how much do you think the Fed can, uh, you know, really raise rates? I mean, there's a, uh, presumably there's a ceiling based on how much debt there is in the system. Yeah, so what's interesting is before the financial crisis, so like 2007 or so, the, the national debt stood at about $9 trillion, just the, the public debt part of it. And now it's at thirty-one trillion dollars, right? So, so what's happened is it's basically tripled in the last fifteen or so years because it's been cheap to borrow, and because as an economy, the U.S. anyway has not been able to produce enough to cover its cost to survival, right? So, right. so more debt, more money is borrowed in order to basically keep the budget um, running and to basically keep the economy running at this sort of public federal level. Um, is also the state level and the local levels. So, so that that's been something that's been fed by cheaper rates, the, the ability to borrow more, more cheaply, and not sort of worry about how the economy is really growing in order to be able to basically grow ourselves out as, as opposed to borrow ourselves out of this situation. And so now the amount of bonds that are on the Fed's books, a combination of treasury, government debt, as well as mortgage debt from the banks, equals $9 trillion. It equals the amount of total debt that we had before all of this stuff happened, before the financial crisis, before the Fed went to zero, before it created money to basically buy all this debt. So, so we're in a situation now where it's basically three times as bad as it was then. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a result, again, this is, this is another reason why this, this game of chicken that you know, you should, we were talking about, um, it's another factor. Because at the end of the day, not just the Fed, but the, central, the Bank of England, European Central Bank, and so forth, they're all facing debt overwhelming um, crises in the, at their sort of doorsteps. And the only way to ultimately keep that from exploding um, is to continue to keep rates low for the next round of borrowing to happen. Now, the U.S. happens to be in a position where um, its its general cost of borrowing is still quite low relative, say, other emerging market countries or so forth. So we, we can still borrow relatively low, low rates, but they're getting higher and higher. And that's going to have a cost to the budget. And that cost is going to basically be have to borrow it against in order to pay it at a higher rate. And at some point, the government is going to have this sort of indoor conversation with the Federal Reserve if it's not already happening and saying, look, you know, we, we, this is kind of getting very expensive to run here. I mean, you know, yeah. and the markets are crashing and we got an election and people are complaining and the economy is slowing. I'm like, what are you guys thinking? Meanwhile, that hasn't happened yet because inflation is so high that there's this belief that's perpetuated um, somehow that the Fed can stop inflation. Um, which it can't, and so this 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 is a problem that we have right now. A lot of a lot of competing yeah, numbers and, and, and very high debt. Yeah, I'm curious on your uh, your take on you know uh, obviously you can't predict the future, but when you're looking at what's coming up, um, energy costs are probably just going to keep going up. I mean, we're going to have winter in Europe, right? Yep. Uh, in the middle of a, uh, a war in Ukraine. Uh, what do you see, like, what do you see happening over the next, say, six to 12 months? I mean, do you see any hope of, of getting inflation uh, under control at all, given the, the, the where we are right now? Yeah, I, I think inflation is going to remain high um, over that period of time for a couple of reasons. One is, that, as you mentioned, there's an energy 
problem crisis already happening in Europe, and that's before winter starts. There's governments are trying to consider whether they can cap energy prices, whether it can help subsidize their people in order to not go um, sort of bust from having to pay their electricity bills. But the reality is that's either going to cost debt um, or or it's just going to cost people more money uh, or some combination, and it's not going to bring energy prices necessarily down if what is keeping them up are geopolitical tensions. So unless, say, Russia gets out of Ukraine and says, hey, sorry, I didn't mean it, and we'll open up our pipelines and all sanctions you know, across Europe will be, will be removed as opposed to being increased, which they will be in December on the energy side, then, then yeah, that could turn around. But if that doesn't happen, if none of that happens, um, even with all the warnings and even with all of the preparations that are going on in Europe, there's still going to be a winter and there's still going to be a lack of um, supply of storage, particularly of natural gas, going into the winter after a very, very hot summer where, where those supplies were already depleted because the summer was at historic highs and people had to cool their places um, and their storages of food and yeah. everything else. So, you know, you have this like really, um, you know, this pending potentially harsh winter after an absolutely harsh summer, um, and that pushes energy prices up anyway. It's the same thing in the United States. We haven't really felt the same sort of crisis mode. I mean, I was just over in the UK for a couple of weeks. You definitely feel it there everywhere. Uh, we didn't. We don't necessarily have it. Anyone who looks at their energy bill, and I just did. I just saw my August bill. I was traveling. I just saw my August bill now, and I was like, "Oh my god, it's like twice as much as it was last August." Yeah. And I and I've been traveling. I haven't even home. <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, I, I think any business, any individual, any family um, is going to be really shocked by the end of their summer bills going into. Um, a winter that's not necessarily going to be easier. And and that's going to absolutely come into play in all of this. So I don't see inflation coming down because of that. Food prices, transportation prices, fertilizer prices, all of those rely on some form of natural gas, or at least for the most part, fertilizer relies on it in order to basically create you know better sort of crop supplies. We're behind on that. There's famines kind of happening. There's droughts happening. Um, you know, and, and there's also the tensions between UK and Europe, which are closing off um, wheat and other types of supply. So, so that's not going to change. So those bills are going to remain fairly high. Um, what could come down are housing prices because people you know, are just not wanting to spend 6% interest on, on, on their mortgages or refinancing. Obviously, that's going to die for a minute um, or during that time period. What that has meant so far are that rents have been increased. Because people are kind of stuck between having to pay that higher rent or getting a house, which they can't afford to buy. Um, but at some point, if people can't pay that, there might be a little bit of a down, you know, sort of a down movement in rents. But, but all those things together still equal um, relatively high inflation, literally no matter what the Fed has done. The Fed's raised rates now since March. And, and the only thing that's really happened is housing prices have kind of come down a bit. Um, everything else is sort of still high. So when you look at all of these uh, really complicated problems that we are dealing with financially, geopolitically, um, do you foresee some kind of, you know, sort of a, a you know, catastrophic event that culminates from all this? I'm just curious, like, I mean, it just seems like we've got so much going on in terms of debt, inflation, interest rates. Uh, where does this are, are you worried about some kind of, you know, uh, problem, big problem up in the pipeline here? 
Yeah, I mean, we're, we're seeing some of these problems, again, come, you know, happening already. An energy crisis, food crises, famine increasing, mm-hmm. um, sort of food poverty, fuel poverty increasing around the world. And I, I, I consider those crises. Yeah. Um, where, where generally crises look worse is when they impact the markets, because um, that's right. when we consider them a financial mm-hmm. sort of less than just an individual economic crisis. And we've right. seen these, you know, we've seen, um, you know, between the Dow, the S&P, the Nasdaq, other international markets are down, you know, 20, 20 to 5 percent. Um, this year and since the uh, Fed started increasing rates and, and, and kind of precipitously with little sort of mini rallies along the mm-hmm. way when there is that sort of collective thought, like, can they continue to do this? Like, is, is are they not going to step in and help because this is kind of, you know, at the moment, at the moment futile. Um, so I, I don't I don't necessarily see like a, a major other crash unless we have another epic war like it, you know if, if the ukraine russia thing gets gets sort of bigger and it does become a kind of world war three if nuclear start if really big things start to happen but i do see this this slow degradation um over the near period where does um, that culminate yes. though how does that you know what, what's <laughs> i'm just trying to figure trying to understand like where all this leads ultimately yeah, I mean, where it leads to is a, is a stagnant economy um, mm-hmm. with with uh, a real shift, um, as we've already seen since COVID and, and sort of the behavior of, of how people are employed. Um, I, I don't I don't think the idea of, of, you know, raising rates in order to tame wages and to tame the, the labor market really makes a lot of sense in this particular market. The labor market's changed so much. Um, how people work has changed so much. I, I don't even think that our employment numbers actually represent the picture of employment. Um, so there's a lot of confusion there. And where does that end? Well, if, if, if there becomes a situation where before, say, the Fed dials back rate hikes and, and we're in a situation where it is very expensive to borrow, not just for governments, but for individuals um, if they need to, or if they're using their credit cards, which, which themselves have rates rising on them, uh, to pay their electricity bills because they need to keep their food, um, their, you know, their, their, their homes either you know, sort of warm in the winter, cool in the summer. I think all of that creates more, like, I think it creates widespread economic angst, um, more so than we have right now. What that usually uh, indicates is more unrest, more political um, infighting, more civil unrest around the world. Um, because when people are uncertain and they have angst and they don't feel like their governments are, are listening and certainly central banks aren't helping and they're not even elected officials, they're just sort of like making things kind of worse. Um, I think that that results in a lot of you know potential violence and, and angst on that side. So um, I, I do think we, 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 we see a lot of sort of crumbling of, of, of what we have. And I talk about this in permanent distortion. This was already 2019 before even the pandemic um, was the, the sort of highest year in terms of um, episodes of social unrest across the economic and global spectrum sort of on record um, and not necessarily meaning one big world war but just in terms of the, the number and the, the breadth you know developing countries yeah. developed countries all that um, and that was be, and then of course everything was shut down but but now we're entering the period where things are open and things are are anxious um, so I see all of those tensions rising and I see um, you know again the energy the food the fuel the fertilizer all of that staying pretty pretty um, expensive because there there's no real there's no real infrastructure at the moment that that kind of is in process to to sort of shift that we do have obviously new energy coming forward you know we have other forms of renewable and sustainable energy that that are coming onto the pipeline but what the problem is what happens is if um, if there's a need right now for what we have right now and it doesn't have um, like in terms of energy and it doesn't have uh, the infrastructure there, we're trying to sort of expand beyond that to tomorrow. It creates again more tension and more sort of um, 
flux and where that all winds up. I mean, I, I do think we're going through a couple of years now of a lot of chop um, until um, the Fed backs off because that's one of the market's problems. Um, there is probably a shift in government, you know, in terms of we'll have another election, then we'll have, an, you know, probably into the next election and around the world. Um, you know, we've had like our fifth or whatever, you know, prime minister in, in, in the UK in the last X years. Yeah. I mean, you just have yeah. a lot yeah. of, um, you just have a lot of change. Um, and, and what that means is that there's no ability to really plan anything or, or to have anything take hold. It's all kind of reactive. Um, and so that kind of keeps both markets and economies on edge. But I think ultimately the markets will benefit from a pivot by central banks, not not yeah. in the next couple yeah. of months, but but the third part of that pivot back to um, reducing rates. And I think that will catalyze more major rallies um, in the market. We'll see the cycle happen again. So obviously, you know, you you've been uh, part of this uh, economy at a um, very hands on level. You're a managing director at Goldman Sachs. Uh, we're at Lehman, too, I believe. Um, putting your investor, you know, hat on, so to speak. Um, what do you think, just in broad strokes, what potential opportunities there are, you know, for investors looking to say, well, gosh, you know, the world is changing. I don't know where to put money. I'm not saying to give us financial advice, but what are some of the things that you are, think about as potential opportunities in the environment that we live in? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I started to mention, I think, that in a different context um, in, 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 in what I said just before with respect to the energy markets, because I think what we've seen here um, and also the fertilizer market, basically, basically en- en- energy for um, for power, energy for food, et cetera. I think, I think those are the investment opportunities right now. And of course, some companies um, are very highly in debt and some companies won't be able to raise capital in these markets because um, there's just a lot less to um, to be gotten at cheaper rates now. Um, but I think in general, um, the power companies that um, are, are well situated, that have a mixed portfolio of sort of, I'll call it old traditional sort of fossil fuel as well as renewable sustainable sort of um, transition. I, th- I think those companies are gonna be the ones that weather this, the utilities that do both can weather this. When I say weather, I mean weather the chop, but also be good investment opportunities, um, as well as the infrastructure for new energy um, as well will, will be a good investment opportunity. Again, the companies that have the ability to actually either finance themselves pay for their financing um, or or a part of the need today as well as the need tomorrow. So I think those hybrid energy companies are really the, and, and the materials that they use. Um, so that goes from lithium to nickel to all, all of the um, battery related or storage capacity related um, metals and materials will also be a part of, of where there's upside um, from an investment perspective. Um, anything that basically looks to, um, well, anything that's profiting now, um, as well as has a future path yeah. on an energy transition. What do you think of oh, nuclear man. energy? I'm just curious, just to, uh, as an add-on to that, um, you talked a lot about some of the other things, but it, it, it seems nuclear, obviously it's got, you know, a lot of countries are worried about the implications of that, but it also seems like potentially one of the best, you know, ways to pay forward in this energy situation. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that, that goes by wind, solar, nuclear, yeah. um, you know, geothermal. I mean, all, all of that's important. And from a nuclear perspective, obviously, that's still tainted from 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 years of disasters sure. at nuclear plants. Um, but but that said, I think we're um, we've evolved a lot past some of that, and then learned 
from some of those mistakes. I'm not saying there won't ever be another sure. disaster in a nuclear plant again, but but certainly um, there's been progress in the technology. There's been progress in the safety measures, um, and there's been progress in the sort of capital that can be used for, for for nuclear power. And one of the reasons we're seeing nuclear power come back online or plants being um, resurrected and, and built um, across Europe is because there's just a realization um, kind of late, but a realization um, because of, of the what's going on in Ukraine that we just need to continue to advance other forms of, of energy, of, of power. Uh, same thing in California. I mean, California, the, the biggest, you know, let's just go wind and solar state in, in, the, in, in the United States. Um, Governor Newsom is talking about and, and, and is basically focused on um, reinvigorating nuclear plants. And so there's that standpoint of nuclear power and the companies that own those assets and the companies that actually can use those assets to produce power, um, as well as the, the materials, again, that go into that. So as well as uranium, um, which is one of the sort of um, feeding factors for having nuclear power. Um, and so, again, that, that sort of spectrum of the material and the energy sources, I think, um, are, are definitely big um, investment opportunities. And again, they're not, it's not like tomorrow because it, we have a lot of chop in the market, but but sometimes if you're looking way ahead, and I've, I've always uh, thought this uh, on Wall Street since since being on Wall Street is is, is if you're looking, you know, decide whether you're an investor or a trader, right? Um, and if you are an investor and you have a reasonably longer term horizon, i.e. more than the next six or 12 months, um, you know, these are all areas that for multiple reasons need to grow. So the book, uh, Nomi, is Permanent Distortion, How the Financial Markets Abandoned the Real Economy Forever. And uh, that book, by the time we publish this, will be available presumably everywhere, Amazon, yes. bookstores, et cetera. Uh, how else can we get a hold of uh, you in terms of you know finding some of the other things that you write, uh, other, other things that you're producing? Well, um, I do have a website where we, we, we do a reasonably good job of, of, of sort of compiling um, whether it's my interviews, my writing, my books, um, and just my tweets, basically everything sort of that's that's, that's home central, and that's um, www.nomiprins.com. And then uh, from there you can get the books, you can get all the social media um, handles and all of that. That's probably the best place. My Twitter handle's at nomiprins, um, so there's that, just real quick. But, um, um, yeah, so I, I have... I have been busy. Um, there's a lot going on, and yeah. so there, there, there is a lot out there. Um, and I, I um, did again. My, my whole mission here is to, um, is just to make the information available um, to people to, to be able to just you know, be informed and, and go from there. We appreciate that. Thank you so much for joining us on Wealth Formula Podcast today. Thank you so much. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. I think Nomi is super smart. I'm, I was really excited to, to interview her and hopefully you enjoyed it. And I think it's fascinating. I think I would highly recommend buying this book and reading it because I think she's basically talking about what's happening in front of us that I think a lot of people know, but they're not really putting it into words, right? And then it's a great distortion. It is a you know, this is a completely distorted financial world that we live in. Doesn't mean you can't make money in it, but you have to understand it, right? You can't, you have to know the rules. You have to know the new rules because the rules have changed. And so you have to be on top of that. Anyway, that's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. Hope you enjoyed the show. This is Buck Joffrey with Wealth Formula Podcast signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, 
consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Safe You with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.